This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books Network and your host, Nathan Moore, are honored to interview Professor Alexander White on a podcast episode about his book, Epidemic Orientalism, Race, Capital, and the Governance of Infectious Disease, out of Stanford University Press. Dr. White is an assistant professor of both sociology and the history of medicine at Johns Hopkins University. His PhD is in sociology from Boston University, and his master's of science is in sociology and was conferred at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Dr. White also has his bachelor's in black studies from Amherst College. His research on colonialism and the social strata of infectious outbreaks have historical and contemporary ramifications. But for us, COVID-19 and biohazards are at the forefront of our everyday culture. Dr. White, introduce yourself to the NBN audience and give us an outline of your research experience. And also, when did you start writing on your book, Epidemic Orientalism? Hi, yeah, thank you so much for for having me. It's really, really a pleasure to be here. Um, My work primarily explores um, histories of international infectious disease outbreak and the uh, international regulatory and response structures that have really existed to to attempt to manage them, um, primarily from the 19th century to the present. And uh, I started this work, uh, you know, this is it's interesting to think about at this moment because I, I didn't, I certainly didn't set out writing this book with COVID-19 in mind or an impending um, global pandemic in mind. I, I started this, this work really as a graduate student. Um, this book now started off as a, as a dissertation. Um, and I really started working on this around, around 2013 when I started to realize the kind of haunting uh, similarities and connections between uh, responses and international and global responses to uh, epidemic events in in the 19th century and their links to uh, really 
what was at the time the uh, Ebola epidemic in, in West Africa. So my work really emerges from um, seeing these kind of haunting similarities between what I was studying at the time, which was a plague epidemic and smallpox, two simultaneous epidemics of plague and smallpox in Cape Town and the ongoing uh, West African Ebola epidemic at the time. Would you say that you notice an element of anti-Asian hate more widely spread now since the rise of COVID? And in what ways does your latest publication address social issues such as racial and xenophobic identities? Sure. Uh, I mean, I think fundamentally we've all been witnessing and and have been um, forced to bear witness to elevated levels of uh, anti-Asian hate and violence as a result of, of this pandemic and the framing and stigmatizing of, of COVID-19 in connection to um, both both uh, China, um, people of Asian descent, and, and, and the association of broadly the entire Asian continent in some way with, with COVID-19. This is in spite of the fact that, you know, I think it's uh, very clear to all of us now that, you know, the United States has suffered one of the most significant and ongoing um deadly bouts of, of, of COVID-19 um, nationally. But, I, you know, I think that what's what's important about about the book, one of the reasons I wrote it, and I think something that uh, I didn't anticipate, but is critical to, you know, the framing of, of the work is that, you know, fundamentally the xenophobia and racism that we've seen in response to COVID-19 is absolutely abhorrent, but unfortunately fits into a much larger and longer pattern and legacy of uh, racism, xenophobia, and, and violence um, related to uh, epidemics that, that, that tend to um, cross uh, international borders. In what ways does your thesis differ from Edward Said's? Yeah, so I draw on, I draw on uh, Saeed's concept of, of Orientalism very significantly to construct kind of my own um, theoretical concept of, of epidemic Orientalism. So I, I'd want to start a little bit by talking about, um, you know, how I understand Saeed's concept of, of Orientalism. And, you know, I, I think that I look at and draw on, on Saeed to, in his ways that he thinks about how the production of colonial knowledge, namely French and and British knowledge of the spaces uh, um, in Egypt, the Middle East, and and other places uh, defined as the Orient, come to serve particular um, political aims, particular colonial aims, um, and allow for the imposition of of power and control. So, you know, I think about uh, Saeed's discussion of, you know, um, the you know, 20 plus volume text description de l'Egypte, which, you know, is produced by, um, by the French as a mode of really, uh, defining this, you know, the area that France is defining is Egypt as a space to be controlled and dominated by, by France and how really this constructed knowledge of, of Egypt devoid of really any, um, you know, Egyptian internal descriptions of the space uh, becomes a way of 
or becomes a means of of dominating, controlling for for colonial aims, right? So we're really talking about the ways in which um, Egypt comes to be understood through the French as a separate space, separate from France, separate from Europe, a place that is. Um, you know, backwards looking, the kind of barbaric remnants of a once great civilization and the aims of kind of French colonial knowledge on Egypt comes to be um, focused on how uh, this knowledge tends to be used for, you know, to think about how we can control and dominate the space. And so I, when I think about epidemic Orientalism, it's really how, um, you know, I define epidemic Orientalism fundamentally as a, a durable discursive f- frame that emerges out of Europe's engagements um, with the rest of the world as a colonizer and a way through, you know, actually Europe, especially through these international sanitary conferences and conventions that I discuss significantly in the book, how European nations and European um, empires really come to define a vision of Europe as a space apart from the rest of the world by virtue of its relative um, uh, 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 difference um, via infectious disease threat, right? And I think that this is this is kind of what I draw upon when I think about epidemic Orientalism, when I construct this idea of epidemic Orientalism. It emerges out of the encounters between Europeans and non-Europeans in colonial zones in the 18th and 19th century um, once you know the threats of diseases to European control, to European economic and political interests, and to European bodies become you know very visible through colonial endeavors, and as we see these sorts of diseases and these sorts of colonial um, disease threats become the mode through which Europe is one able to understand itself as a space apart, and this is an act of, of myth making in, in many ways, but also a mode through which the world can be. Uh, or the the world of infectious disease can be governed such that um, the space of disease risk becomes Europe and the space of threat, i.e. where diseases are coming from um, that, you know, frame and shape what we might consider global threats are places beyond, beyond Europe and beyond, um, quote unquote, you know, this vision of the West. And is there a genealogy or body of knowledge that you are situating your argument within? You mention and refute some of Foucault's ideas. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't want to, um, I don't want to add to to a set of critiques of of Foucault. I mean, I, 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 I think anytime you're talking about, as as I do in the book, the ways in which um, knowledge and power structure. Um, subject formation, like political subject formation. In this case, um, the ways in which um, people who are perceived to be either at risk of spreading um, infectious disease or who are suffering from an infectious disease, you know, are allowed and able to travel across international spaces or allowed to migrate, um, these sort of questions. Whenever you think about that, you know, I think Foucault's notions and concepts of biopower um, importantly arise. You know, I think that... um, I depart from um, Foucault in in a, in a few ways. One, I you know I don't necessarily draw on biopower, um, though I am explicitly talking about 
knowledge power and power over bodies. But, you know, really what I what I'm exploring is something that, that Foucault doesn't consider, which is really the ways in which ideas about the body, ideas about infectious disease come to be understood um, outside through through engagements outside of the spaces of Europe. I think, you know, famously, um, some many, many of the critiques of, of Foucault's genealogies are that, you know, we could define the entirety of the modern world through looking inwardly to actions, activities, and practices that occurred in Europe. Uh, I think, you know, Ann Stoller and a, and a host of others have, have referenced the fact that, you know, so much of Foucault's genealogy would only be possible through um, the engagement um, and, and practices and violent practices of colonialism, which reified and, and brought back to um, imperial metropoles like France and, and Britain um, tactics and systems of power and control. Um, so, you know, in, in my work and in this piece and in this book, I really uh, attempt to um, both contest a Eurocentric genealogy of of power over bodies, but also at the same time, um, you know, I want to situate the construction of discourses around infectious disease control really within um, this wider global um, set of colonial and imperial orders. So, you know, to do that, I draw very heavily on, you know, post-colonial, decolonial, anti-colonial scholarship. I, I, you know, I, I link Said's work, obviously um, a towering figure in post-colonial studies, with um, the work of, of Stuart Hall, um, Sadia Hartman, Sylvia Winter, and others. I also draw heavily on Ashilin Bembe's concept of necropolitics, especially in the last empirical chapter of the book. Um, and I think that, you know, Mbembe really gives us a useful way to look at the way that, uh, look at how biopolitical analyses often ignore other genealogies of power derived from colonial conquest, slavery, and imperialism. So in this work, I'm trying in many ways to um, write a genealogy of power on bodies and, and international structures of infectious disease control and the powers um, that operate within that through um, those histories and legacies of colonialism, slavery, and imperialism. You mentioned various diseases in your book, but for your audience, demonstrate or at least tell us which outbreaks you focus on the most. So, you know, the, the book kind of emerged out of out of a central puzzle, which is that, you know, I was uh, traveling to Liberia um, at the tail end of the West African Ebola epidemic, the, uh, there were no more Ebola cases in, in, in West Africa and I was, um, or in Liberia. And I was curious to, um, interview, um, folks in, in Monrovia about kind of actually, you know, what were the long term, longer term, or what do they perceive to be the longer term effects of, um, you know, what we would now call social distancing practices, um, quarantines, lockdowns, um, curfews, um, you know, the refusal to shake hands and engage in, 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 in bodily contact, you know, what two years of living, um, through that experience, um, you know, how is that shaping kind of the, the, the post epidemic moment? And, you know, while that project actually, um, you know, might, those experiences might sound very familiar to us now, um, 
what I ended up being most fascinated by was um, the experience of leaving the country where traveling through the um, Monrovia airport, an airport that's, that's rather um, small um, where actually, you know, where international flight seating plans were kind of drawn on a piece of paper, um, you know, despite this kind of the, 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 the smallness of the airport um, and the, um, you know, you could argue lack of resources, there was this overwhelming um, biosecurity infrastructure there, which was really, you know, um, three or four infrared um, thermometer, like temperature taking stations, um, several cameras, um, infrared cameras that would that would scan your your temperature, um, and then you know the requirement of of um, basically going through a a boarding checklist um, to confirm that you hadn't been in contact with anyone with um, you know who'd been infected. Uh, or exposed to Ebola virus disease, and then upon you know flying out of of Monrovia to um, the connecting flight in, in Casablanca, and then back to um, London where I was traveling to, you know we were meeted, greeted at the door of the plane by um, by sanitary officials or sanitary officers wearing you know full um, full clean suits and masks, um, or, or, or actually full full kind of biohazard suits with um, infrared thermometers taking everyone's temperature um, as we departed the plane. And, you know, what I what became fascinating to me was the ways in which this massive biosecurity infrastructure was mobilized, um, uh, you know, upon us leaving um, in the site, even after the, the epidemic had passed in, in Liberia, and how that, you know, meshed with kind of the Work that I had already done on the international sanitary conferences of the of the nineteenth century that were very much about policing and controlling the movement of people through um, colonial spaces, traveling to to Europe and the areas of the Mediterranean in particular. And so the the kind of the puzzle of the of the book came to be, you know, what are the legacies of of this these international sanitary conferences? Ultimately, these uh, international sanitary conferences, which begin in eighteen fifty one. Um, and through the last conferences in 1938, uh, produce a series of conventions um, aimed at preventing the spread of international, uh, the spread of infectious disease across borders um, for the management and protection, uh, for the maximum protection against infectious disease with a minimum effect to trade and traffic. As its motto, uh, they produce a number of conventions primarily against plague, um, cholera, and, and yellow fever. And these three diseases would continue to be the primary focus of international uh, infectious disease regulation, really up until 2005. Um, in in the, uh, after World War II, the International Sanitary Conventions transfer over to the, international, to the World Health Organization and ultimately would become the international health regulations that we have today. Um, and I was really curious about, you know, why in spite of the rise of, you know, um, of, of flu in the uh, mid 20th, in the early 20th century after World War One, why after, um, you know, the rise of things like Ebola in, um, in the 1970s and, and 80s, and, and ultimately, you know, especially um, the emergence of, of HIV AIDS, why are the only international um, regulations on infectious disease control focused explicitly still up until 2005 on plague, cholera, and yellow fever, these diseases that were primarily the concerns of, you know, uh, 
Western colonial enterprise in the 19th century. So, you know, I focus in, in particular in the book on, on those um, in, the, in the first few chapters and then kind of explore how this particular concern, especially around the threat of those three diseases uh, that they pose to um, imperial trade networks, to um, colonial economies and colonial stabilities, come to be seen as the greatest threats um, to Europe. And actually how, you know, many other diseases that might have also fit within certain criteria, those certain, those same criteria, um, ultimately tend not to emerge as the objects of international infectious disease control, despite, um, you know, what is really a um, massive loss of life um, and, and significant concern. So, you know, the book really focuses on, on, plague, cholera, and yellow fever in the early periods. It explores, you know, why HIV AIDS in particular does not become, um, you know, perhaps one of these diseases that becomes the object of international regulation. And then in the in the latter stages of the book, when I concentrate on the, the world post-2005, you know, it becomes much more of a story around the global concern for diseases like um, SARS, um, SARS from, from 2000. Three um, Ebola virus disease, uh, and then ultimately, of course, uh, COVID nineteen. What are the forces governing global response to pandemic threats, and how did they begin according to your timeline? Yeah, so th- this is this is um, you know really where the book tries to speak to the remarkable durability of certain discourses around infectious disease threat, and what I tried to in the book is is ask this kind of central question and i think this builds on kind of the answer that i that i just gave which was around you know why do these what what can explain the persistence of the focus on certain diseases uh even after they've you know seemingly not uh, seemingly um, appear to be less of a less of a global threat you know i what i became quite focused on and i think becomes um kind of a, a a major question, motivating question for the book is, you know, how does an infectious disease or how do infectious diseases more broadly become the object of of international regulation? And really what sort of structures, systems and forces need to exist in order for um, an an epidemic or or in order for an infectious disease to to exist within a regular international regulatory uh, schema, and what I what I argue is that you know by really looking at the only international regulations um, controlling the spread of infectious disease, the international sanitary conventions, and then later the international um, sanitary regulations, international health regulations under the WHO, um, you know what I what I suggest is is really that. Um, when we're talking about the regulation and control of infectious disease, we're talking explicitly about the control of bodies um, and people's bodies moving around um, space. And with that, you find that in order to, you know, as these, um, as the need and desire to control and manage the spread of infectious disease, and namely cholera, um, beginning in, in 1851 with the first international sanitary conference in Paris, and then expanding to plague and, and yellow fever in the latter part of the 19th and early 20th century, um, what we see is that you know when um, infectious diseases become framed particularly as a threat to British, French, 
Ottoman and other um, imperial interests, and explicitly kind of Western European imperial interests, uh, the ability to regulate the spread of infectious disease becomes very significantly about the necessity to control the movement of um, of certain people seen to be a uh, risk of spreading um, infectious disease um, over over colonial space, and really looking at the risk of infectious disease not just as a risk to to life, but as a risk to fundamentally um, economic systems of of trade, colonial networks of trade, um, and and ultimately. Um, wider, wider colonial projects. So the, um, you know, the way that I argue that epidemic Orientalism manifests itself is that, you know, these particular um, governmental, uh, um, I guess, these particular um, forces of governance of populations, these particular concerns for infectious concerns for infectious disease as a function of economic risk and economic um, threat come to frame how we see the threat of, of infectious disease really, you know, both today and, and, and throughout um, the period that I'm looking at. Um, and this comes to focus overwhelmingly on seeing infectious disease threat as, a, as those diseases that come from quote unquote over there. Right. Um, and I think, you know, the, the, in the introduction, I go through kind of three quotations from, um, you know, one from the 19th century, one from the 1950s, and then one from um, the 1990s that really explore how, you know, we continue to replicate this certain discourse that the greatest threats to our world are um, posed by really the increasing pace of trade and traffic. And then, you know, fundamentally as a result of that, the risk of, um, you know, a disease um, living inside a single person in some far off place, uh, being able to travel, you know, almost instantaneously anywhere around the world and then need to safeguard against that. So that's, those are the sort of, um, forces that are, that, that operate within this, the space of international infectious disease control. And, you know, what, what changes throughout the book is I'm not saying in, in the, in the book that these forces are always consistent or that they're not contested. Um, but that, you know, fundamentally, we um, find that um, that there are actors attempting to refuse them, um, you know, within the World Health Organization and elsewhere. But it's nevertheless um, a, a certain discourse that always seems to need to be responded to and engaged with even in the present. And as, you know, technological and scientific changes have allowed in many cases infectious disease to be um, a, a lesser threat than it was in, you know than they were in the in the 19th century do people have all the information they need about diseases in order to prevent them or is there a lot of th- are there a lot of things that we don't that the normal public doesn't know yeah I mean I think I think you know I, I think that um, one of the fundamental transformations really in the last, um, 150, 200 years around infectious disease. And, and I think, you know, what's made this possible in many ways is the rise of and, and acceptance of germ theory, which I talk about significantly in the book, um, you know, is, is, is concomitantly the rise of disease surveillance, right? And the knowledge of where, um, 
you know, where and how diseases are spreading. And one of the things that I, I discuss significantly in the book is how that, um, how systems and networks of disease surveillance have transformed um, really, really over time. Um, you know, I think that the recent or the ongoing epidemic uh, and pandemic of, of COVID-19 is a remarkable example of how quickly um, we're able to isolate novel pathogens in the present. You know, COVID was was largely uh, first reported in the latter um, you know, latter days of, of of December 2019, and within you know several weeks, the um, or days and we days and you know really one to two weeks, um, the entire virus was isolated and it was mapped um, genetically, and 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 there was an understanding of it um, to some extent, and I think that that you know that's in significant contrast, for instance, to, um, the history of, of HIV AIDS. Now, while AIDS was, or HIV is a uh, retrovirus, which, and this was the first, um, retrovirus to be, to found to be associated with, um, particular disease outcomes, um, in humans, it took, you know, several years before the, the virus itself was, was isolated. Um, so, you know, I think I think that the there globally there's a significant and robust network of um, of disease surveillance systems that are able to locate and isolate um, novel or unusual uh, disease spread very quickly. I think you know, to some extent the the issue is not necessarily always surveillance or knowledge, but whether or not public health responses international health responses to those epidemics uh, end up serving to halt the spread of infectious disease effectively or um, in, in some ways um, hasten, increase the, the risk of spread or, or ultimately uh, harm populations. And I think, you know, an example that um, I draw on significantly in the book throughout, throughout the kind of um, time periods that I'm looking at is the, you know, the employment of, um, of, of travel controls, um, and targeted, um, travel controls against, um, people, nations and, and populations seem to be, uh, you know, spreading certain infectious diseases. And I think that, you know, the, the examples of, uh, the, um, you know, exclusion acts against uh, Chinese and, and, and Asian uh, immigrants from uh, in the in the late 19th century in the United States. Um, and then we can even look to the conversations around Title 42 and certain controls against um, against migrants in, you know, under the supposed aegis of, of public health concerns related to COVID-19 or once again, examples of um how xenophobic aims at managing and limiting the movement of peoples to certain nations um, are are able to be employed so effectively under uh, epidemic uh, um, epidemic moments, and that you know brings with it very very serious dangers. Outside of the WHO. What governing bodies are in charge today when it comes to outbreaks and who should we be looking out for? 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think that this is this is an interesting and really important question um, right now. Um, you know, as I as I mentioned, as I mentioned in the book, um, really since 1851, there's been one guiding set of of conventions and regulations around the management of infectious disease spread in humans, and that you know really those are the international sanitary conventions that were in operation till um, you know till till World War. Um, Two and then after you know in the formation of the World Health Organization and part of the you know justification for the formation of the World Health Organization, um, the transference of the internet of these international sanitary conventions to the power um, powers of the of the WHO um, and then the you know the production of the international health regulations that we have today. Um, you know, the international health regulations have faced a number of uh, crisis moments. You know, one being really in the early 90s where the absence of um, any ability to kind of manage, navigate or organize responses to to HIV AIDS led to uh, the need to reform the international health regulations of, of, um, of, of 1969 very significantly. And this, um, you know, which led to a period of, of reform of the regulations that didn't end until 2005 with, with the newest instantiation of the international health regulations. And now, um, as a result of kind of the existential crises that have emerged around COVID, the World Health Organization and its ability to manage infectious disease threats, the international health regulations are, are, have now been slated to be, to be revised once more. Um, so as I mentioned, you know, these international health regulations are the only regulations um, managing the spread of infectious disease internationally amongst, um, you know, within humans. The World Trade Organization um, has a, a a similar set of regulations, but focused on um, zoonotic threats that, that emerge, especially out of um, livestock risk and the spread of diseases among animals, um, which actually has significantly greater power, uh, and I discuss this in the book, than, than the international health regulations, because the World Trade Organization has has sanctioning power um, and other ways of, of controlling and managing responses to um, to threat. Um, so, you know, those are the two large international um, agreements, though, it seems that, you know, in, in, in the uh, in the international regulatory crises that have emerged out of the COVID-19 pandemic, um, there are possibilities for uh, pandemic treaties, as well as a host of, of other novel formations um, for the managing of, of infectious disease internationally. I mentioned the book, the World Bank developed, um, although it's no longer developing um, the pandemic emergency financing facility, but there's still, the World Bank is still uh, engaged seriously in um, financing international infectious disease responses. Um, the CDC um, has a number of foci, um, you know, as well as, um, you know, we can't forget um, a, the the organizations um, related to the management of um, especially HIV, AIDS, tuberculosis, um, and malaria, like the Global Fund or the, or UN AIDS. Um, but in the book, I focus in particular on, you know, these, this kind of discrete set of regulations, namely the international health regulations, um, to understand these processes by which economic concerns, political concerns, um, and infectious disease threat kind of 
develop and emerge um, in you know throughout history. HIV AIDS is well documented after the 1970s, but why was it so transformative for scientists who were studying responses to pandemics in particular, if you haven't mentioned it already? HIV AIDS is, is deeply important because in one sense, HIV emerges at a moment when there's a great deal of confidence actually that uh, humanity as a species had kind of turned the corner on infectious diseases. Uh, you know, we had rather recently eradicated smallpox, the only disease in humans that's ever been fully eradicated. Uh, and polio was, you know, was and continues to some extent to be en route to, to um, eradication. And, you know, the rise of um, antibiotics and uh, other therapeutics for treating infectious disease seemed to, um, you know, produce an, an era of, of real um, optimism that, um, you know, that the threat of infectious disease might actually be on the decline. HIV and its emergence, um, you know, in the in the nineteen late nineteen seventies, really uh, challenged fundamentally uh, that that optimism. Um, we had the emergence of a novel uh, retrovirus, something that you know, as I said, you know, hadn't um, been known to cause diseases in or illness and and death in in humans before, um, and you know, with that, it was the discovery of a completely different type of, of virus. And that, you know, it was one that it was a, um, a virus that uh, drastically destroyed your immune system. Uh, and thus it operated differently and needed novel therapeutics and antiretrovirals to, to treat and manage that took a long time to develop um, often as a result of, of lack of um, lack of political will and lack of funding um, that had to be, you know, fought and, and rallied against by and by hosts of um, of citizen scientists and, and and activists, and and as a result, it, it led to, you know, a a, a crisis of um, within the scientific and, and public health community in particular about, you know, how can we actually assess um, the risk of infectious disease when we may not actually even be able to know what those threats will be in the future. So the emergence of HIV being so um, scientifically unique and different led to a need to reconsider how we recognize and appraise what an infectious disease threat is. Um, and, you know, basically, you know, if we see the next pandemic on the horizon, will we even be able to recognize it in time to, to respond to it? So this, this led to new systems of infectious disease surveillance that started to be developed, um, namely around, you know, the reporting of unusual um, clusters of, of syndromes or um, the unusual presentations of diseases that might be the markers of, of a novel, um, a novel um, pathogen. Really, you know, this led to a focus on what we might call emerging infectious diseases, i.e. novel um disease threats that are not, that were, that were either uncommon, hadn't been, um, you know, uh, or, or were, were, were less recognized or, you know, completely, um, 
completely new. And that became a, um, a concern and a focus of, and continues to be a focus of uh, international infectious disease control. So HIV in, in many ways was a, was a parad- paradigmatic or paradigm shift um, in, in thinking around infectious disease control. Can you explain how you use the idea of myth-making? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, I draw on um, Enrique Dussel's um, notions of kind of the myths of modernity um, to link to um, this kind of more existential question that I that I draw upon in, in epidemic Orientalism, which is that, you know, the way in which the international sanitary conferences of the 19th century kind of allowed and and led to um, Europe seeing itself as a, um, you know, as a coherent entity at risk of certain disease threats, um, ultimately produced this kind of mythical version of Europe as a, as a static container that needed to be protected. So, you know, what, and I draw on, on, on Said again um, for this, which is, you know, what Said remarks upon um, is, is really in, in Orientalism is this kind of dialectical relationship between the formation of Orientalist thought um, and, and colonialism, which is that, you know, in defining um, and, and capturing uh, the Orient as a space of, of radical difference. Um, subsequently, Europeans, namely the, the French and British empires, were also subsequently able to um, define themselves in opposition to that radical difference, right? So everything that the Orient is, the Occident is not, right? And, you know, despite, um, and, and, and I would, you know, I would suggest that this is kind of, this is, this is a mythic, telling of or, or a mythic defining of of oneself in relationship um to you know quote unquote the other so what i what i argue in, in epidemic orientalism what i do when i talk about about myth making in particular is that um you know while through these conventions and and conferences while european powers were you know defining um the populations that they were most at risk from, from cholera, from plague, from yellow fever, namely um, colonial populations, but especially, you know, there's a significant focus on, um, on, 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 on Muslims traveling on Hajj to, um, to Mecca and then the risk of cholera fundamentally spreading from um, India to, um, to Mecca and then on to European Muslims who could possibly take cholera back to to Europe in the sense that um, you know there was something about um, Islamic culture Islamic practices that left Europe exposed to um, to to the risk of cholera you know was a mode of setting Europe apart of, of setting of constructing racial and xenophobic boundaries um, you know really between certain populations and as a result you know really building a mythical vision of Europe as a static entity from which all others um, could be judged. So I, I, you know, I suggest in the book that, you know, when I talk about um, the West, quote unquote, um, I'm not speaking about a, um, a region or an object that's fundamentally um, 
real or unchanging in any way, despite it sounding very monolithic. I'm actually suggesting that you know what we see in 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 the framing and construction of the West is is something that's been being built through these conferences and through these conventions um, and through these regulations as the as a um, you know as a kind of form that exists in opposition to the rest of the world and is relational rather than um, rather than defined for and by itself. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. What about alternative medicines? Do you mention any in epidemic orientalism? Um, so, I mean, I think the, the, the book really focuses on um, the formations of international infectious disease control um, regulations. You know, I think that the, the, and and it is a, a largely um, biomedical story, which is also the ways in which medical knowledge in different ways has shaped um, certain visions of uh, which spaces are are able to protect themselves from infectious disease, um, which spaces are not. And as a result, which spaces might be a threat um, broadly to to the West. I don't discuss um, in large part individual uh, medications really at all, let alone um, or, or, or kind of the disputes between, um, you know, and I think often um, uncomplicated uh, disputes that need to be much more complicated um, around, um, you know, non-biomedical interventions. I, I think that, you know, the wor- works that um, have inspired this this work significantly um, that do discuss that and look at that are, are, are pieces like um, like Claire Dakota's Ancestors and Antiretrovirals that looks at the intersections of um, HIV treatment in South Africa, biomedical HIV interventions, um, and traditional medical interventions that that take place. But I don't I don't really address that significantly in the book. What about local responses you mention and you focus on the global response to pandemics but is it only a global phenomenon you know what what i what i look at in the in the book in particular ways are really how infectious disease regulations emerge through international and transnational um practices of developing um systems of, of disease control but you know, in several chapters within the book, I look at the ways in which these international um, regulations have had uh, distinct effects on um, on particular locales um, undergoing an epidemic. In particular, you know, I think the, the chapter in which explores um, responses to cholera and plague in um, Cape Town, India, and um, and American controlled. Uh, Hawaii really look at the ways in which the risk of, um, namely 
economic isolation uh, through trade embargoes and things as a result of the presence of um, namely plague, plague and cholera um, in each of these sites structures particular responses on the ground is really is really important and really telling and what i what i discuss in in that chapter in chapter three are the ways in which uh the broader imperial concerns for the threat of plague cholera and yellow fever to trade and traffic lead to the formation of particularly um racist and xenophobic or namely racist responses to um to controlling those those disease threats. So in, in, in Cape town, for instance, um, the threat of, of plague and the emergence of plague in Cape town in 1901 leads to the formation of, of, um, a racially segregated quarantine zone that would turn into, um, you know, would ultimately become the first, uh, racially segregated township in, in South Africa and the model and a pre-apartheid model for, um, racial segregation un- under apartheid. Similarly, in um, in American-controlled Hawaii, uh, you know, an epidemic of of plague leads to the quarantining and segregating off of um, of the city's Chinatown, and then um, ultimately a um, controlled burnings of. Um, supposedly plague-infected materials in uh, by American sanitary authorities leads to much of um, that part of the city actually being being burned to the ground, um, leaving, you know, m- many of the people living there um, destitute and without, with, without homes. Um, and, and, and similarly, we can look at uh, epidemics of, of, of plague uh, and cholera um, but most explicitly, plague in the in the late nineteenth century, in um, you know British colonial Bombay, now Mumbai, um, for the ways in which infectious disease practices, controls, quarantines, and segregations were carried out along um, caste-based lines, and how the movement and travel um, in and out of um, different regions of, of India came to focus on not only infectious disease risk, but also um, your your um, you know uh, which which caste uh, you belong to. So you know they, I look in particular on you know the, I focus in the book not just on kind of the global formation of, of these conventions and conferences, but also the ways in which uh, international sanitary regulation um, has at times come to structure. Um, oppressive uh, and, and racist uh, responses at the sites of, of epidemic outbreak. How have the policies of vaccine and quarantine changed over time and are they still improving? So I think that's a, that's a really interesting question because one of the things that I try to challenge in the book um, and suggest is that as at this Kind of um, narrative of um, technological improvement and and the kind of unceasing uh, um, progress of of science is something we need to we need to take we, we need to consider very seriously and, and at times um, challenge. You know, I think that the um, it goes without saying that you know vaccinations. Uh, and medications to manage, control, and prevent the spread of infectious disease 
have been developed and they've been overwhelmingly successful. Uh, you know, I think the, the, it's, it's very clear to say, um, that the, you know, vaccinations, the rapidly developed vaccinations for COVID-19 have saved, um, you know, thousands, if not, if not potentially millions of lives around the world and access to them is absolutely critical for managing, um, and controlling and limiting, um, the ongoing spread and morbidity and mortality of, of infectious, of, of COVID-19. Um, similarly, you know, the, um, smallpox vaccine, polio vaccine, many other vaccines have been incredibly effective. They were produced over the 18th and 19th century, been incredibly effective at, um, turning what were once, you know, potentially, um, diseases that could lead very rapidly, um, to death into, um, into, uh, manageable or preventable, or at the very least curable, um, curable diseases. The, you know, what I think we see and what I try to detail in the book is that, you know, despite significant changes to structures of quarantine um, and controls, we do see these haunting similarities between, um, you know, for instance, racist and xenophobic responses in um, 1900s uh, Hawaii uh, towards um, Asian populations and suggestions and focus and, 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 or suggestions, innuendo and outright racial violence against um, Asian communities and Chinese diaspora, the broadly Asian diaspora um, across the U.S. today. Um, similarly, um, while forms of quarantine don't necessarily take the form of, of racially segregated um, quarantines in the present, you know, I think the experience um, of we can, we can look to the 1901 Cape Town plague epidemic and its um, you know and the and the movement towards a racially segregated uh, quarantine space and ultimately a segregated uh, the segregation of the city itself between um, you know black uh, Africans and and in large part um, the well, white European population there, you know, we can see similarities in that and the ways in which um, the area of West Point in, um, you know, 20 teens Monrovia was isolated and locked down um, in part, in no small part, because it was an area that was seen to be um, at, or it seemed to be a particular threat by virtue of the fact that the people living in that area um, were poorer and were seen, you know, and perceived as a significant risk of disease spread to, to more to wealthier areas of the city. So, you know, while I think we've seen significant technological shifts, and those shifts have been very important and very significant, we still see this haunting nearness of um, 19th and early 20th century racisms and xenophobia structuring uh, perspectives on, you know, who is the um, perpetual potential threat of spreading infectious disease and who and which populations are considered to be kind of the innocent at risk. Uh, and all too often, those um, distinctions fall along racial and ethnic lines and along um, long-held fissures um, that have been dictated by oppressive systems of uh, control and, subject form and racial subject formation. 
Did you ever speak with the former Surgeon General Jerome Adams? And what do you think about the new Surgeon General Vice Admiral Vivek Murthy? So I, I, um, I spoke to numerous um, people within the, um, you know, who, who've been active in um, international uh, health and international, in, in the international health world and, and the infectious disease space um, due to, um, for ethical reasons, I'm not at liberty to name um, who I've spoken to. Um, and I, you know, I want to protect their, their, um, their confidentiality. Um, and I want to thank them also for, for speaking with me so candidly in, in, in the book. And I really appreciate it. Um, but, you know, I, I, I um, but I can say that, you know, no, I, I, have, I haven't spoken to the Surgeon General either in the past or, or current um, Surgeon General um, on these materials. I mean, the focus of the, of the book is largely, especially in the more, in the, in the present, largely focuses on the workings of the World Health Organization um, the World Bank and, and elsewhere, um, where um, the Surgeon General has not generally been, um, the position has generally not been a key actor. Are you a proponent of popular science response persons like Dr. Fauci or Dr. Sanjay Gupta? And if you were to find comparisons to similar figures in the past, do you have them in epidemic orientalism? I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think, you know, um, I don't know if I'd characterize Dr. Fauci as a, as a, as a popular, um, as, as kind of a, as a scientist at large or a doctor at large, um, Dr. Fauci was the, the head of the National Institutes of Health, um, and, you know, had a, a significant, um, an important role to play in, in the pandemic response, um, to COVID-19. Sanjay Gupta, I believe is, is a, is a doctor affiliated with CNN um, and that's and and his credentials are that he's a he's an he's an MD um, you know I don't I, I don't have a you know I'm, I'm supportive of any um, anyone who who provides um, clear cogent and effective um, public health information or health information to the public or helps to distill you know really complicated um, scientific and medical matters to to an audience um, I think public health, uh, uh, public health communication is an incredibly difficult job. And what I, and I think one of the things that has been a challenge with the COVID-19 pandemic has been the um, lack of recognition of the role that um, the realm of the political has played in um in what was supposedly kind of a discrete, separated and hermetically sealed space of, of science. And I think what, you know, what I try to argue in the book and what I, what I speak about significantly throughout it is that, um, you know, to look at infectious disease management through any single register, um, whether it's economics, whether it's, um, you know, broadly infectious disease science, whether it's the realm of politics or it's the realm of international affairs, you know, is to kind of, is to flatten its multivalent, you know, the, the multivalent meanings of infectious disease. And fundamentally, you know, the, the, the realm of, of, um, of science, as much as we perhaps wish it, it didn't, you know, can't, can't and does not exist outside of the social world. The two are fundamentally uh, co-produced. And I think that that's, that's an important thing to recognize. It doesn't mean that 
um, you know, I, I, I want to be very clear here that I'm, I'm not suggesting that um, medical science, that somehow invalidates medical science or somehow makes, um, you know, any scientific claims uh, less than less than accurate in any way. What I want to say is that our interpretation of the realm, though the world of science can never be extracted entirely from from the the um, social, political, and economic perspectives that that we draw from as as humans um, today. So I think that you know what I hope this book could serve as is a way of explaining that wider socio-political milieu that operates in the field of infectious disease control so that perhaps, you know, rather than uh, being shocked and appalled at the emergence of um, racism, xenophobia, and violence around infectious disease, uh, the emergence of infectious diseases, or, um, you know, instead we recognize that this has been a fundamental component of um the way we discuss and the way we've managed infectious diseases really since uh, infectious disease could become an object of international regulation. And that to address it, we need to, you know, not only confront the, the elephant in the room, if you will, but also uh, respond in manners that don't reproduce uh, this discourse of epidemic orientalism in the future. Why are international sanitary conferences central to your book? So the international sanitary conferences were uh, were ostensibly um, meetings of major um, medical um, and, and scientific um, leaders from various nations throughout um, nations and empires throughout Europe, um, Britain, France. Um, the Persian Empire, Ottoman Empire, um, and 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 many others, and political actors. So in in you know in 1851, the first international sanitary conference is held in Paris, and it's the first time that um, scientists and politicians are brought together to kind of work to produce um, policy or international regulations on the management of infectious disease. Um, and I think this is this is important because, as I, as I note in the book, that you know even before, um, you know, regulations and standards on weights and measures, um, or the formal establishment of, of Greenwich Mean Time as kind of the um, the site where you know the 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 global day um, begins and ends to some extent. You know, we were there. There were conversations around how to manage the spread of of disease across uh, borders and this these conversations were being had between scientists and, and and politicians in unison so the conferences were sites not only to produce um, infectious disease regulation as they ultimately would in the in the you know last two decades of the 19th century but they were also uh, a space for clarifying condensing and coming to consensus on um, on a host of on a host of issues related to the management of infectious disease, and one of them, you know, one of these areas that was most significantly the site of, of of conversation was really how to control and manage populations at the sites of epidemics, such that they wouldn't travel to places where um, 
you know, where where uh, that, that could pose a threat to to European um, colonial and imperial interests. And this is where you know really the a Eurocentric perspective on infectious disease control uh, comes to be defined, which later becomes a broadly um, Atlantic, I would say, or North Atlantic perspective on um, on infectious disease control comes to be defined, i.e., um, recognizing the space of, of Western Europe and um, North America as the sites that need to be protected from infectious disease threat um, from a supposedly uh, less sanitary uh, much of the rest of the world. Um, so this is the space where, um, you know, I would argue that epidemic orientalism comes to be um, a global discourse um, and one that ends up structuring international infectious disease response. So I trace, you know, in chapters um, in in in, in uh, chapters two and three, kind of the and four actually the development of the international sanitary conventions through time, um, and the through these conferences um, where they're being produced at. Were European miasmas or bad air transported to the colonies also? And in what ways was disease transmission in Europe different than in the colonies? So, you know, what what is an important element of, of the book are the ways in which, you know, the I discussed the ways in which certain health threats that were capable of traveling um, from... Um, European sites of empire and European uh, colonial sites were perceived as more threatening than those traveling in the opposite direction. Uh, in the uh, in the first chapter, I, you know, I explore and and touch upon you know especially the the um, transmission of smallpox um, to the Americas and the violent um, decimation of indigenous populations. The smallpox um, produced in conjunction with um, deeply violent um, eradicationist practices by um, Western uh, colonial powers, or sorry, European colonial powers, um, Spanish, French, um, and British in particular, and Portuguese. Um, and, you know, what I discuss is that really what we see is that smallpox, for instance, despite being a, a very significant and persistent global threat until its eradication, in large part, um, despite entering into the International Sanitary Conventions um, in, the, in, the, in the 20th century, largely does not um, become a focus of major international um, concern within, within the International Sanitary Conventions or the, or, or the International Sanitary Com Conferences where these conventions are being um, written and produced. So what we see is this kind of um, bifurcated perspective of, of infectious disease threat, where disease is traveling from sites of colony with the potential to disturb trade and traffic or um, harm European lives are seen as more threatening than those traveling or with the capacity um, or are likely to travel in the opposite direction. So, you know, the uh, miasma theory largely... Um, dissipates as a um, as an understanding as germ theory 
becomes a more dominant for, form of, of thinking about um, disease threat, right? You know, once once the cause of diseases comes to be understood as a, as a microbiological phenomenon, um, kind of ideas of, of, of bad air or harmful air or, or miasma uh, uh, start to start to wane. And the miasm, miasmists, um, you know, end up ceding uh, their medical authority to, to germ theoreticians. And urbanization. New York City is a prime example of a densely populated area that also has a history of sanitary conventions. What other global cities are vital to understanding the history of pandemics? Oh, I think, I mean, I think a host of global cities are very, are very central um, to understanding the histories of pandemics. I think, you know, the, um, as I, as I, you know, I've already mentioned, I think, you know, in the case of, of Cape Town and the 1901 uh, bubonic plague epidemic there, you know, we see the ways in which certain racial logics within Cape Town are mobilized as a result of these wider um, international concerns about the spread of infectious disease to Europe. Um, similarly, you know, um, many cities in, in India, um, especially, you know, Mumbai, I think is, is, is a site for not only, um, you know, witnessing horrendous um, British colonial responses to, to disease and the, and, and, and the control of infectious disease, but also, um, you know, is and continues to be a site of, of key research um, on, on infectious disease and, and key innovations in understanding them. Um, you know, I think Honolulu is another focal point along this trajectory. Um, but, you know, I think, I think that really in the present, any, you know, the, the um, cities are, are critical to our understandings because they're sites, they're global sites in which, um, you know, there's a lot of cultural, political, social transmission, um, as well as, as as disease transmission. So city, cities are, you know, a central element of, of any story when you're talking about infectious disease. And can you go over Ebola and monkey virus for us and why it's important to understanding the African influence in the global response to pandemics? Sure. I mean, I think I think that um, so you're, you're referring to what's now known as, as MPOX um, through through the through the WHO. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think that the you know, we saw both in response to Ebola virus disease um, and MPOX, the ways in which uh, the spread of, of, of the two diseases so quickly resonated around um, attempts to justify why these diseases were perhaps emerging and spreading in, in, in the spaces that they were. And it was focused around, you know, we, with, with, with um, Ebola virus disease in particular, there were a host of um, anxieties and concerns that, that were triggered, especially in, um, in Europe and, and the West around, you know, connecting the spread of Ebola to um, certain cultural practices that would otherwise be seen as, you know, incredibly banal, such as, um, you know, the, the, uh, the associations between the spread of Ebola and 
quote unquote unclean cultural practices of burial, for instance, um, where people are touching bodies or um, or certain other um, forms of, of conviviality of daily life that suddenly under the harsh gaze of, in, of infectious disease come to be scrutinized, stigmatized um, in all manner of ways. Similarly with, um, you know, the emergence of the, the understandings of sexual transmission of, um, of MPOX as well, we get these, uh, this production of a certain vision of um, innate cultural difference, innate racial difference being the cause of the emergence of these diseases, which is suddenly now by virtue of um, their presence, potentially um, international infectious threats. And I think this is kind of emblematic of the ways in which, um, you know, as I've discussed, epidemic Orientalism fundamentally operates, which is, you know, it's not sufficient to, um, to view an infectious disease threat purely through its um, biomedical risks that it poses, but actually to the, the ways in which our perceptions of infectious disease threat also oscillate around um, cultural, social, racial, and xenophobic um, concerns for fundamental difference, right? Fundamental human differences between um, you know, certain populations. And I think that this is, this is a critical area where we've seen um, stigma and racism and, and in the case of MPOX explicitly, um, significant homophobia emerge around the, the framing of the disease and also um, the certain justifications for managing its spread, focusing on the limitation of movement, or um, or engagement with with certain people and, and their bodies in ways that are detrimental and deeply oppressive and not in service of, of any sort of um, broader public health um, uh, public health response. Do rural places sometimes suffer from a lack of response in the global pandemic? response absolutely i mean i think i think the you know one of the things about global pandemics is that they're they're very global um, but often rural areas lack access to resources in perhaps the same way or less prioritized um in ways that that cities are you know i think this is this is important perhaps um you know stepping outside of the book for the for a moment i think you know this was a particularly important issue and continues to be an important issue in relationship to to covid 19 where you know especially um in the aims of of vaccine uh, equity and access access to the covid 19 vaccine we saw that rural populations were really um significantly disadvantaged with access to um to the COVID vaccines, especially in the early days in the, in the United States, um, you look at um, areas of, of, of Alabama um, and, and Mississippi, for instance, where, you know, your nearest vaccination facility might have been uh, several hours away. It's really important to recognize the resource scarcities and then also fundamentally the ways in which, um, you know, perhaps those resource scarcities uh, reproduce um, racial health disparities, reproduce um, class and ethnic uh, health disparities that uh, only compound the issues uh, that are already existing during during an epidemic moment. Can you describe some of the art and poetry that you present in your book? Some of them 
like George Frederick Keller, 1881, are fascinating. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's, I mean, I think that what, what's important about some of the um, deeply troubling um, and violent um, art that I, that I depict or that, that, that I, that I discuss and I incorporated in the book um, are the ways in which um, cartoons and artwork became or exemplify um, what I, what I define as epidemic Orientalism. So you, you referenced this, um, you know, this rather hateful image of um, uh, that's, that's captured a statue for um, our Harbor and the Harbor is in um, italics. It's of a, um, of um, it's, it's essentially a mockery of the, of the statue of Liberty um, with a um, man dressed in, in um, traditional uh, Chinese clothing. Um, it's a stereotyped image of, uh, of a Chinese person standing atop a skull um, holding an opium pipe uh, and um, with, instead of the kind of, crown of of the or like the crown of sunlight i guess you could say is on top of the statue of it's on the statue of liberty's head there are um five rays emanating from it reading um filth immorality disease ruin to white labor um and i think you know and also i should mention that the that the um this the statue is meant to be in uh the san francisco harbor which was undergoing um an, a, a plague epidemic at the time um, you know, and I think what what images like that, albeit horrifying, communicate um, is are the ways in which you know really infectious disease, um, racism, xenophobia, and concerns for um, for labor and economics come to come to be closely aligned. Uh, you know, we see in that in that image really the ways that um, that concerns for infectious disease quickly give way to some thought that foreign, quote unquote, for, you know, foreign foreign bodies, both infectious disease and foreign peoples, are going to pollute the um, the body politic and the and the and the populations of, um, in this case, the city of San Francisco or the United States in general, which tie into all of these notions of, of racial hygiene and, um, and, and, and defilement that, um, that comes with, um, with immigration that were so critical to political discourse in the United States in, in the late, in the late 19th century. So, you know, this association between disease risk, um, racial mixing and, economic concerns become very clearly tied and linked in an image like that, that demonstrates that, you know, it's not just the risk of disease. It's not just the presence of, um, of foreign peoples, but it's actually the combination of these that will lead to the downfall of in this, in this case, kind of white American civilization. And it's very um, explicit in, in that. And I think that, you know, what's, important is you know while while those images are in the book i also mentioned in the preface um the um you know very very thematically similar um uh, uh 
discriminatory cartoons that we saw in a variety of, of um, I believe I mentioned kind of, of Danish, um, Dutch, uh, Mexican, and, and several other newspapers that depicted, you know, early in the COVID-19 pandemic, um, the uh, a, a Chinese flag with instead of the, the, the stars that are on the Chinese flag, either um, the, the biohazard symbol or um, cartoon um, drawings of, of coronaviruses, um, which, you know, while not perhaps as um, directly evocative as the statue of our harbor, um, really fundamentally, I think, reflect and reproduce the exact same um, themes thefts, and, the, and, the, and invoke the same sort of um, racist tropes and imagery as, as the piece you know, produced over a century earlier. So we see this haunting continuity of um, these sorts of justifications of the sorts of epidemic orientalism in the present. And it's, you know, when we can't think that these, um, these same discourses that we see in, in the media don't also uh, affect and reproduce themselves in, in policy and practice. And how much of the topic of bioweapons and war make it into epidemic orientalism? So bioweapons and the, and the risk of um, biological attacks in, in any form um, become very significant to the international health regulations after 2005, where um, the framing of infectious disease threat moves from kind of being three particular diseases as I mentioned, you know, plague, cholera, yellow fever, and 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 or, or and several others, to actually um, the construction of this thing known as a public health emergency of international concern, which is a um, you know which is a WHO defined um, uh, uh, um, designation um, that's been um, triggered several times for COVID nineteen, for um, for MPOX most recently. Uh, also for Ebola virus disease, um, and um, and for the ongoing uh, battle against polio, but within that public health emergency of international concern could also be a biohazard or bioterror um, or, or sorry bioweapon usage event. Um, the example that was given, you know, as as they were developing the international health regulations in two thousand five, was the um, sarin gas attack, for instance, in. Um, in Japan that occurred or the uh, 2001 anthrax um, attacks that happened across, uh, across the United States uh, via, via the mail. So while I, while, while the book doesn't discuss um, biological warfare in particular, in no small part, because it does, it hasn't become a central, there's no event that's really been um, critical to that. Um, war is a significant factor in, in the book at, at various times, um, namely the kind of absence of the international health rate, uh, the international sanitary conventions to respond to, um, the, uh, influenza epidemic after world war one, but also, you know, the ways in which in the ending, you know, in the final years of world war two, as the, um, 
as a thing that would come to become come to be the world, the world health organization was kind of being discussed within um, the league of nations health organization with the within the um, office of, of international public health um, we started to see you know particular concerns around you know if you know if the if the flu the flu pandemic um, occurred after world war one what sort of horrible um epidemics and pandemics might occur in the aftermath of, of World War II. So the um, destabilization and the violence of war, the degradation, the, the human um, cost of war, as well as the, um, you know, the, the invariable making of, of um, dis- the, the invariable displacement um, of peoples and the movement um, of uh, refugees and um and displace peoples back to their homes after World War II, as well as the um, you know the, the re um, rehabilitation of of um, people within concentration camps, survivors of concentration camps, um, was a particular concern for the possibilities of epidemics that could emerge um, out of out of these um, you know horrible. Um, Human rights atrocities and horrible um, post-war um, moments, uh, and this led to, you know, a further or kind of a heightened concern for the need for the maintenance of a set sets of regulations around infectious disease control and what would ultimately become the transference of the international. Uh, sanitary conventions to the WHO and the formation of the new international sanitary regulations, which would then become uh, the international health regulations that we know today. Would you say that the eradication of disease is possible? Well, I mean, I think within 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 humans, the only disease that we've been able to effectively eradicate in history was was has been smallpox and while the smallpox eradication campaign of the world health organization has really been heralded as a uh, massive success and it and it was uh certainly um, a huge success and a huge moment in international health this was the product of you know also over a hundred years of, of 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 vaccination already against vaccination and inoculation against smallpox Previously, so by the time that the World Health Organization kind of steps on the scene, um, smallpox was already was only existing in, in a few places um, around the world. Um, and while global vaccination against smallpox um, was absolutely critical, um, you know, it's fairly unlikely, I think, that that many other diseases will um, will be eradicated. Um, certainly, in in our in our lifetimes. Um, and while I think it's a it's a it's a commendable goal on paper, I think we we you know the lengths and the effort and the energy that it takes to um, eradicate an infectious disease uh, makes it very very challenging, um, very very challenging indeed. Do you have a favorite science fiction or another genre of film or television series about outbreaks? I like Contagion or I'm Legend or The Walking Dead. That's a that's a great question. I mean, I think it was interesting that you brought up Contagion because Contagion, you know, was a was a um, a movie 
um, p- people should should check it out. Um, Gwyneth Paltrow's in it. Uh, Matt Damon is in it as well. A lot of folks are in it. Lawrence Fishburne um, and and Kate Winslet as well. It, I you know I think um, Contagion is an interesting one that you bring up because it's actually you know I think I think it provides. Um, an informative case in thinking about epidemic orientalism, where it's a disease that fundamentally travels around the world and, and kills, um, you know, what seems to be millions of millions of people globally. Um, but, you know, towards the, in the last um, minutes of the film, we see the ways in which this um, disease has been able to spread and how it moves from ostensibly um, you know, a bat, a bat chewing some fruit that drops on the ground that a pig then eats. This pig is then killed um, at, for 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 its meat, and then you know the passage by which it transmits from from a animal host to um, to a human is through um, you know a um, a chef at a very fancy um, casino. I want to say in in Macau. Um, but maybe not. It does. It's not really particularly important where where the casino is in 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 East Asia somewhere. Failing to wash his hands after um, touching the inside of the mouth of this pig, and then shaking hands with uh, Gwyneth Paltrow's character, thus leading to the spread of of the epidemic. And I think that you know what becomes so critically you know what you see in this kind of um, conscious or un, you know this 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 conscious moment of of script writing is that you know. A disease emanating from um, a rural area in, you know, in a in a somewhat undefined space in in Asia, being spread by animals and then ultimately through the unsanitary practices of um, a, um, you know, of, of of the chef reproduces this particular vision that like the greatest threats to, um, well. Gwyneth Paltrow, who's a representation of, in in this case, in no small part, since the film focuses almost exclusively on the United States, you know, the greatest threat to the U.S. and the broader Western world are the unsanitary behaviors and practices of um, of of um, Asian peoples and those outside of 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 the West. And you know, while it's a really interesting film for thinking about infectious disease dynamics, it falls into this this epidemic orientalist trap that we see being reproduced again and again and we could play that scene out almost in relationship to um you know the 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 um deeply insensitive and racist cartoon that we were that i described um earlier um but that's not really your you know and i, and I think you know I, I suggest you go back and watch uh contagion again and, and think about that stuff because i think it, it's an interesting moment at the end of the film um but i you know for me personally, um, you know, I, I, I do. I, I don't watch um, that many zombie shows, although I have played and I've and I'm watching uh, The Last of Us currently, which I think is is kind of interesting. It's about a fungal, um, you know, an, an epidemic of, of a fungus, which is which is pretty um, interesting. Although it also kind of falls into the same uh, tropes that Contagion does at certain moments. Um, yeah, I think you know. I, I honestly don't have a have a kind of a huge science fiction um, focus when it comes to to epidemics, um, but uh, you know, 
I guess if I had to be pressed, I might choose like World War Z because there's kind of an epidemiologist, sociologist person in the beginning who um, I empathize with the first time I watched it. And then he got killed by zombies in like the first 20 minutes. So, you know, in the event of a zombie apocalypse, I'm probably not your guy. It is what it told me. As a sociologist, what emergent field or traditional medicine track can prove the most effective at responding to disease? Would it be microbiologists or epidemiologists or surgeons or some other profession? I mean, I think I think they all play a hugely important part, whether it's in treating patients or, or whether it's in, you know, mapping the scale of, of an epidemic. I think what's what's really critical is that there needs to be a recognition of the way in which history, uh, the way in which um, the legacies of colonial and imperial um, formations of, of racism, xenophobia, ethnic violence map onto uh, uncomfortably at many times um, our current, our, our present day, and also have shaped, you know, the legacies and, and practices of our international infectious disease control systems. We need to, you know, we need everyone but you know i think also you know we need folks within within the medical sphere to re- to consider and recognize those those legacies so that we can actively combat them to produce um, better health outcomes better international regulations around infectious disease control and as a result um, less violent more therapeutic more caring and more compassionate uh, pandemic response and what is a declaration of PHEIC? Right. So a, 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 um, that's a public health emergency of international concern, um, or PHIC, as it's, as it's um, generally um, described as. And that's, that's a, um, ostensibly when um, an epidemic um, or a, a, a health event, um, it could be a bio, um, a biohazard event, um, at certain points, a, a environmental crisis or in, in most commonly, um, an infectious disease event, um, meets certain criteria. The WHO through the director general is able to declare a public health emergency of international concern and a public health. And so any of these, uh, potential events have to meet certain criteria. The criteria, namely, is the public health impact of the event serious? Is there a significant risk of international restrictions to travel and trade? Is the event unusual or unexpected? And is there a significant risk of international spread? So should an epidemic kind of meet these criteria, the World Health um, Organization Director General, um, on advice from the Emergency Committee, um, which is a group of experts that are convened, um, to um, ad- assess the, the risk can define a public health emergency or declare a public health emergency of international concern. Um, and as I mentioned, you know, a public health emergency of international concern has been declared um, historically. Um, the first was for um, uh, H1N1 uh, swine flu um, for Ebola virus disease in West Africa for um, COVID, certainly for most recently for um, Mpox um, earlier this or, or, or last last year, um, and um, you know those uh, and and I think the um, 
as well as for Zika microcephaly, um, and as I mentioned, for for, for polio. Um, those are the public health emergencies of international concern that have been declared. Um, so the the, dec- the declaration allows for the WHO to seek extraordinary funds to manage um, the, the, the international spread of an epidemic. Um, it also allows them to suggest um, policies to the member nations of the World Health Assembly and to um, you know, the nations of, of the world, um, as well as to suggest, you know, potentially um, to suggest or suggest against um, um travel control certain travel controls and it also allows um ostensibly the who to um, globally manage the nature of epidemic responses now what we've seen with um recently especially with COVID 19 is that um you know is that this this public health emergency declaration despite seemingly empowering um the world health organization to um enact um you know, to 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 um, respond with significant power um, can often be uh, thwarted or challenged um, in particular ways. So um, it leads to, you know, as, as I kind of write about um, in the penultimate um, empirical chapter of the book, it leads to kind of to, to a host of um, symbolic struggles both within the WHO and outside over the authority of the WHO to manage infectious disease um, responses. And what does the future hold in store when it comes to pandemic and epidemic responses? That's a great question. Um, You know, as, as, you know, I think, I think, we're going to see the significant reform of the international health regulations um, towards something perhaps that you know we haven't uh, seen before. I think this could be a real break in the 150, 170-year story of the international health re- international sanitary conventions through the international health regulations. So you know, I think um, we'll have to see. And I think this is a it's a fundamental question about the the power. Um, and and possibilities of the World Health Organization, whether or not the World Bank or another international organization ends up claiming more authority over um, the control and management of epidemic uh, risk is a very is a very serious one, and I think um, you know I'll be keeping a very close eye on it. But um, whatever happens next seems like it'll be um, potentially quite a rupture from from what's come before. And to some extent, I hope it will be, um, because I think that the you know the the um, elements of discourse the discourses that shape our world of infectious disease control really uh, need to shift. Are you planning any in-person seminars, meet and greets, or anything else? When are you returning to Johns Hopkins? And how can New Books Network subscribers get to learn more about you? Sure, not, I I do have a um, I have a book launch event at Bird in Hand in Baltimore on February seventh. Um, I encourage anyone who wants to 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 attend. Um, I'll be giving a number of talks at um, at various um, universities around the country, and I'm I'm happy always happy to talk about the book and talk about. Uh, my research with anyone who wants to get in touch. Um, you can also 
um, follow more of my work and the work of my brilliant colleagues um, th- at the at Johns Hopkins University through the um, work of the Center for Medical Humanities and Social Medicine, which I'm an associate director of. Uh, we have a number of events. We have a, a brilliant podcast um, called For the Medical Record um, and uh, online seminars and series that uh, that you might want to check out. And also, you know, feel free to, to email me. You can find my details as Alexander White um, at the Johns Hopkins, uh, on the Johns Hopkins uh, website. So those are all the ways you can contact me. And I look forward to anyone who wants to chat. And any final thoughts for your audience? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that, um, you know, what I tried to do with this book was really think about the ways in which colonial forms of knowledge, systems of power and domination end up infiltrating seemingly hermetically sealed spaces of science. And uh, what we need to recognize are the powerful ways that our social world, our economic logics, our political logics shape and come to shape the ways we see um, ostensibly natural phenomena like epidemics. And um, with that hope and with that hopeful recognition and hopefully with the a recognition of the um, violent legacies of past epidemics as well as the ways in which um, racism, xenophobia, and these discourses shape our present understandings of infectious disease risk, we can produce more equitable, more effective, um, and ultimately more humane responses to pandemics in the future. So thank you so much for having me, and I really appreciate it. New Books Network and your host, Nathan Moore, thank Dr. Alexander White for an episode on the global pandemic response. His book, Epidemic Orientalism, Race, Capital, and the Governance of Infectious Disease is a must read for anyone interested in the history of global health and the adverse communities it affects.